The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think that based on the idea that certain crimes are so grave that they affect the international community as a whole and therefore cannot go unpunished and that victims and communities where these crimes have occurred can be helped, they can kind of gain some sort of solace in the fact that justice has been pursued. I think for those reasons, it still is a project with a lot of merit. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, February 9th, 2022. Last month, a court in Germany convicted a senior Assad government official for a crime against humanity and sentenced him to life in prison for activities overseeing detention centers in Syria where the government interrogated and tortured suspected anti-government activists. The case was unique, not just for the profile of the defendant, but for the fact that the crime had no nexus to Germany. Instead, it's an example of what scholars call a universal jurisdiction case. In these cases, a country like Germany exercises criminal jurisdiction over certain crimes like war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity. A collection of European countries, as well as Argentina, have incorporated provisions like this into their criminal code. And universal jurisdiction cases have served to bring justice for offenses committed in a range of conflicts across the world. To talk through the most recent developments and the phenomenon of universal jurisdiction cases, I sat down with Haley Evans, a research fellow working on Afghanistan projects at the Max Planck Foundation for International Peace and Rule of Law. Haley's also the author of a series of pieces about universal jurisdiction that have appeared on Lawfare, including one this week. It's the Lawfare podcast, February 9th, Universal Jurisdiction Cases. All right, so Haley, we're going to use the term universal jurisdiction a lot during the course of this conversation. So before we do anything else, what do we mean when when we say that term? Sure. So in its purest form, universal jurisdiction is an international law principle that gives a state jurisdiction over certain grave violations of international law. These would be violations like crimes against humanity, genocide, and war crimes, even when the crime did not occur on the territory of that state or with a link to those states' nationals. So universal jurisdiction is essentially based on the idea that certain crimes are so grave that they affect the international community as a whole, and therefore they cannot go unpunished. And so this will become clear, I think, the longer we talk, but what's what's like the basic legal accountability problem that universal jurisdiction is trying to fix? Like what's the what's the need that it's responding to? 
So I think there's two needs that it's responding to. One would be the basic doctrinal legal problem. So under international law, states do have a whole host of obligations to investigate and prosecute certain serious crimes. And there are several bases on which a court might assert their criminal jurisdiction. So this could be based on territory where the crime had occurred, based on the nationality of the perpetrator of the crime, based on the nationality of the victim or victims of the crime, or based on the protection of national interests or security. So the universal jurisdiction principle is in addition to those bases for jurisdiction and in its purest form requires no other nexus to the state that is prosecuting. So if other international legal fora are not available for criminal prosecution, universal jurisdiction is kind of a welcome antidote. And then on a more practical level or looking into accountability on kind of an abstract level, it can help ensure that war criminals do not find safe havens in other countries. So universal jurisdiction can be used to help prevent impunity through holding perpetrators criminally liable and in that way helping prevent similar crimes from occurring in the future. Of course, it's just kind of one tool in the arsenal of tools for obtaining accountability for the gravest breaches of international law. There's other tools like domestic remedies, where states can prosecute the crimes that have occurred on their territory, for example, on their own. So an example would be like the Gambian Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission. And there are also other international remedies like the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda uh, and the International Criminal Court. So trying to make this more practical now, uh, speaking specifically about Syria. This is a place where some of the worst atrocities of the 21st century are taking place. The kinds of crimes that are taking place are on a kind and on a scale that haven't been seen in a long time or even never before. So including the use of chemical weapons, violations of IHL like targeting hospitals, detention and torture of hundreds of thousands of people. Unfortunately, the international community hasn't been able to do anything because the Security Council is blocked by Russia and China's vetoes. So without the votes of Russia and China, the Security Council could refer the situation to the International Criminal Court, or it could create an ad hoc international criminal tribunal like those for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. So without these means that normally would be available, universal jurisdiction is really a powerful tool uh, used to effectively pursue accountability for some of these really terrible international crimes. So just to make sure we're, we're all on the same page. So universal jurisdiction of the type that you're talking about here and of the type that you've written about a bunch of different times in lawfare is in its, in its essence, right, is when somebody commits a crime, you know, someone commits a, what would you call it, Haley? Like a, what's the, the adjective that modifies crime that you would use? So it really depends. It depends on which types of crimes you're talking about. In an armed conflict, for example, under international humanitarian law, states parties, the Geneva Conventions must investigate and prosecute grave breaches of the 1949 Geneva Conventions in the context of an international armed conflict. So conflict of an international nature. So I would say grave breaches under IHL would be one adjective. And then under international human rights law, it really kind of 
depends, um, which is why I was kind of, you, you caught me, but I was trying to use kind of an amorphous term, like, like serious or the worst, because under international human rights law, it could depend. States are required to investigate and prosecute certain crimes under a whole host of comprehensive, universal and regional human rights conventions, as well as crimes defined in conventions that explicitly require investigation and prosecution. Uh, these would be like the Genocide Convention and the Torture Convention. So you can call them grave breaches if we're talking about war crimes, for example. But it, it really is just some of the, the most serious violations or the most grave violations of international law, I would say. And so this comes in when you know that type of crime has allegedly occurred, but no domestic court will address the problem. And there are all sorts of barriers to getting it in sort of like international criminal fora like the ICC. So what happens then is, you know, a third country, as we'll talk about later, almost always a third country in Europe will, will try these cases. Is that right? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Let's concretize this a bit. So one of the cases that you have written about a bunch of different times for Lawfare is the Anwar Razlan case. So could you talk a bit about who he is and why he's so relevant to this discussion? Sure. So Anwar Raslan was a or is a colonel and a former Syrian intelligence officer who was the head of the intelligence department of Branch 251, also known as Branch Al-Khatib and later Branch 285. These branches are main detention centers that were run by the Syrian General Intelligence Directorate and were the site of torture and the deaths of many detainees since the beginning of Syria's uprising um, and the Arab Spring in 2011. Importantly, Raslan is also the highest ranking Syrian official that has thus far been convicted for crimes against humanity committed in the course of the Syrian conflict. And his case, though, is, is not in Syria, but it's in Germany. So could you talk a bit about first, how did Germany even come to get custody of him and, and what charges has, has he been on trial for? Sure. So Germany actually got custody of Anwar Aslan because he actually fled from Syria to Germany, where he was then granted asylum. German authorities in particular have been investigating the situation in Syria since 2011. So when they learned that Aslan was in Germany, they were then able to pretty quickly pull together his case. I also would be remiss without mentioning that there is a fantastic center also based in Germany, the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights, which has a whole program dedicated to bringing accountability for international crimes. And as a result, has brought a lot of these crimes in German courts. So Raslan was convicted on January 13th for his role in the torture and abuse of over 4,000 detainees allegedly held or proved to have been held under his command between the end of April 2011 and the beginning of September 2012. Specifically, he was convicted of having committed a crime against humanity in the form of killing, torture, serious unlawful detention, rape, and sexual assault. Also, with murder in 27 cases, grievous bodily harm in 25, as well as uh, especially grievous rape and sexual assault in two cases. I'm, I'm reading now from a uh, part of his verdict. So essentially what all of this means is that after considering the evidence, 
the court found that Raslan was responsible as a co-offender in this protracted and systematic attack launched against the, the Syrian civilian population that led to the murder of 27 people and 4,000 others having been tortured and detained. So this would be, if in a different hypothetical situation, he was being tried for just rape and murder for crimes that had been committed on German soil, right? This would be completely, it would be, you know, a big deal, but unremarkable. But the, the important part here, as you have written for us, is that German criminal code has specific provisions that allow German courts to try this type of defendant, even absent any sort of nexus to, to Germany itself, right? So in the U.S., you might see news about a Canadian ISIS propagandist getting indicted in U.S. federal court. But for that to happen, prosecutors would have to show some sort of U.S. nexus to the crimes, right? And that's not the case here at all. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's not the case here. So like I mentioned before, there are several bases on which a court might assert their criminal jurisdiction. But in this case, the German Code for Crimes Against International Law actually allowed the German courts to try Rosslan for crimes committed outside of Germany, regardless of the nationality of the victims or the perpetrator or any other connections to Germany. So certain other states like Sweden and Norway also have vested universal jurisdiction in their national courts in a similar manner to that of Germany. So in a a very broad way, requiring no material conditions to the applicability of universal jurisdiction for certain crimes. By contrast, other states like France, for instance, do require some links. In my post, I mentioned how recently the French Court of Cassation held itself incompetent to hear certain proceedings against another state's uh, Syrian state security services official on the grounds that Syria has neither ratified the Rome Statute nor criminalized crimes against humanity in its domestic legislation. So essentially certain parts of domestic French law disallowed the French courts from uh, having the trial against this individual in this particular case, whereas a court in Germany likely would have been able to follow through with that trial uh, in the same way, even without links. So it really depends. Multiple states have incorporated in their domestic legislation either the Rome Statute or somehow principles of universal jurisdiction, but it's really dependent on the actual wording in the domestic legislation uh, or how the the legal system works, how they incorporate international law, whether or not they will require some sort of traditional form of jurisdiction or universal jurisdiction in its most pure form, like Germany. And Haley, how long has this been the case that German courts can do this type of thing? Is this a relatively new development or is this sort of a a product of their post-Nazi reunification effort? So it's it's been since 2002 that uh, Germany has had this uh, C-sale, their particular code that enables them to do this. This timing makes sense because it was back in 1998 when the Rome Conference was held and the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court was created. And then in 2002, the International Criminal Court was itself made. So 
I would say that the timing is not is not unique to Germany and directly relevant is the creation of the ICC and the uh, ratification of the Rome Statute by Germany. So moving back to the Rosslan case specifically, how did it fare at trial, right? Like what was the nature of the evidence that prosecutors brought against them? Were there, were there any sort of evidentiary concerns or any sort of wrinkles with, with this type of prosecution or did it go all things considered fairly smoothly? So evidence in this trial, as in other trials that that German courts are having or have had against the officials in the Syrian regime, so his co-defendant who was uh, sentenced last year, have benefited from actually a the fact that German investigative authorities had taken kind of a keen interest in documentation years back. So there actually are specialized units within both the Federal Criminal Police of Germany and the Federal Prosecutor General that actually their job is to investigate international crimes. In regards to Syria in particular, the Federal Prosecutor also runs a number of a number of structural investigations into large-scale crimes and so gathered and preserved evidence for future proceedings in respect of Syria since 2011. So the German case is kind of a special one in that they have embedded within their investigative authorities these uh, ways for gathering evidence. Also, for not just German cases, but for many cases, evidence is gathered by two UN-created bodies, the UN Human Rights Council established in 2011 a commission of inquiry that was meant to and did investigate alleged violations of international human rights law and later of international humanitarian law. However, the investigations that the commission of inquiry conducts are not of a criminal nature. So its evidence could only be used to supplement other criminal investigations The second body that the UN created was in 2016, they created an investigative mechanism. And this investigative mechanism collects and analyzes also violations of IHL and IHRL. And so then that evidence can be used to help support national and international criminal trials. And again, turning to this particular case and the Syrian context in general, I'm sure you heard a number of years ago of the fundamental nature of the quote-unquote Caesar photos and data. So these were uh, photos and accompanying metadata that were taken uh, in Syria between 2011 and 2013 by a Syrian military police defector known as Caesar. And these were subsequently smuggled out of the country. So these photos evidence the systematic torture in the Syrian government's detention facilities. And so we're really, we're really vital at this trial and also uh, will be for uh, future trials of the same kind that are held in Germany. I believe this is only the beginning for German trials, criminal trials of the Syrian state officials. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you 
constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. And how have other countries fared in... I gather that Germany has really taken the lead on trying Syrian defendants, but other countries, as you've written about, have have tried similar things with with people involved in different conflicts around the world. How have those trials gone in general? Yeah, so it really it really depends. Uh, a lot of them are ongoing, and a lot of them have been successful in the past. The one that I mentioned earlier, the French the French trial, uh, actually wasn't even able to be held because of an issue of uh, French procedural law. But an interesting, I guess one interesting uh, example of something that I wrote about would be the move to use universal jurisdiction for crimes committed in Myanmar. So these are crimes committed, allegedly committed by the military and security forces, especially against the Rohingya community. Interestingly, Argentinian courts are going to investigate the alleged commission of these crimes and also are cooperating with the International Criminal Court. Uh, So that's kind of an interesting, not only from the perspective that Argentina is the only of, of the cases that I talked about and of the kind of general nature of the, the locations where these cases have, have occurred, the only country that is not in Europe. And it also uh, has a different jurisdictional basis for, or it has different, a different way that it incorporates universal jurisdiction into its domestic legislation than, than for example, that of, of Germany. So I think that that's going to be a really interesting, an interesting case to follow because uh, back in November, the federal criminal court in Buenos Aires decided that Buenos Aires federal jurisdiction must investigate. So I think that'll be definitely one to watch. Okay, so let's move to a bit of a discussion of the criticisms of these types of prosecutions. So, you know, there's a lot of good that can be accomplished by doing things like this, but you, as you address in your piece, they're they're not always universally popular, right? And I wonder if you could just sketch out and then we'll dig into each of the specifics. What are sort of the, the constellation of objections to, to this type of prosecution? Sure. So I think, firstly, I, w- I would want to note that I think on the whole, the uh, response to these types of prosecutions are positive, but there are a number of different types of uh, criticisms, as, as you point out. One would be kind of the state sovereignty critique. So essentially, the, the very basis for universal jurisdiction being problematic, state sovereignty being an issue because universal jurisdiction enables 
one state to interfere, quote unquote, in another state's affairs and that being an issue to the international community and the whole rules-based international order that we have crafted. That's an argument um, put forward by um, people like Henry Kissinger. Other criticism is is criticism that is not just unique to the universal jurisdiction paradigm, but also is uh, common to the International Criminal Justice Project, the International Criminal Court as a whole. So this would be kind of the the criticism that it is only countries and crimes that have committed in the global south or primarily crimes that have been committed in the global south being investigated by these global north or kind of western uh, countries. And so the argument is that there is, it's, it's basically that universal jurisdiction is kind of a form of jurisdictional imperialism in that it is used to unequally enforce certain norms. So while you would see the Syrian regime being investigated in Germany, you probably wouldn't see, for instance, the maybe the, the Russian uh, regime's involvement in that being investigated. That probably is also for other reasons, but it's this basic idea that there's kind of this inequitable enforcement of norms in a way that is replicating some kind of colonial tendencies. One of the things I noticed when I was writing this paper, or when I was writing the blog, was that speaking of kind of these colonial tendencies, I think it's interesting to note that former colonial powers seem interested in investigating crimes that occur in their or have occurred in their former colony. So if you look at, for instance, the Netherlands recently arrested a man who was suspected of war crimes committed in Suriname. So uh, that's a former uh, Dutch colony. There were the attempted French proceedings that I've now mentioned against the Syrian state security official, and that was a former colony of France. And then also uh, the fact that Belgium is the European country with the most judgments concerning the Rwandan genocide. Again, also there's colonial history there. So, and, and as you mentioned before with, with Germany, I think that there is also some sense that the, this jurisdictional tool is being used as a tool of foreign policy. So when there are state units that are able to kind of initiate these types of investigations, they obviously can choose where they investigate and where they don't investigate and who they bring a case against and who they don't. I'm sure that it's it's more the decision making is more complicated than just that, but I do think it's interesting to analyze as we have this growing corpus of case law which states are are looking at which situations and why they're doing that and is that right? I would like to return though to my first point which is on the whole I would personally say that universal jurisdiction is still a good tool. It's it's by no means a panacea to any of these issues that we talked about of these legal issues or these issues of justice, but because it can be wielded unequally, it can pose these logistical challenges. For example, accessibility of witnesses when you're having a trial in Germany for crimes that occurred in Syria. These these are difficulties, but I do think that 
in this repertoire that I mentioned earlier, that the arsenal that we have to combat impunity on the international level, this is one really, really important tool uh, that we have to use. And as I think the Syrian example shows, sometimes it really is kind of the only option. So I, I think that going back to the beginning, based on the idea that certain crimes are so grave that they affect the international community as a whole, and therefore cannot go unpunished, and that victims and communities where these crimes have occurred can be helped, they can kind of gain some sort of solace in the fact that justice has been pursued. I think for those reasons, it still is a project with a lot of merit. And you alluded to this a bit in your answer there, but how much of those, right, how much of the criticisms that you mentioned are distinct from just general criticisms of sort of the project of international criminal law? How much of, to the extent that there's, you know, objections to this, how much of it has to do with anything specific to universal jurisdiction? I think that your question is a good one because I don't think that uh, a lot of the criticism of universal jurisdiction is that distinct, actually. I think that, you know, there there is this kind of idea, there's um, a kind of a movement called third world approaches to international law. And I think that that kind of could be emblematic of what we're talking about here or the, the type of critique that we're speaking about could be associated with this movement. But I, I think to answer your question, it they aren't all that different, actually. So Haley, reading through your most recent lawfare piece, it seems like a lot, there's, there's been a lot of activity recently in this space, right? In the past two to three years, especially relative to you know the previous stretch of time. Is there a reason for that? Like, am I right that things have been accelerating in this space in the past couple of years? And to the extent that you can identify a reason, what, what might that be? I do think that you're, you're right in that. And I, I think there is kind of this resurgence of, of the use of this, or maybe not even a resurgence, but maybe this is kind of the heyday of universal jurisdictions use. I think part of it is that states have bolstered their domestic legislation to really allow for this jurisdictional hook to be used. Uh, and then also that states, I mentioned earlier how Germany has these state units that it's, that it's using to kind of collect evidence, analyze evidence, bring cases there are other states that also have these kinds of domestic institutions. So I think that that is one of the reasons. I think another reason is Syria. I think that in general, there's been a massive focus on Syria, especially given the issue that I mentioned before. It's, it is where some of the worst atrocities have taken place and are taking place. And the international community hasn't been able to do the kinds of things that it would have done in previous years because of these vetoes. And then lastly, I think we really have a lot of strong organizations that that have had a lot of success in bringing these cases. So there's the one that I mentioned before. There are a number of victims organizations that have brought cases. Once you see success in like these cases obviously take take a long time to conclude. And I think the fact that we're seeing success in the way that the legislation is able to be utilized and then the way that the the courts are deciding in in a way that kind of victims organizations would like um, that that's helping the project all right so you know you've been following the space for 
three, four years now, maybe a little bit more than that. What are you looking forward to? Like what's on the horizon that you're keeping your eyes out for in the next couple of years? That's a really good question. I, I think that one of the things that I'm interested in seeing is there are these specialized war crimes units now. So there's one in France, there's there's one in Germany, there's one in the Netherlands. I'm interested in seeing what those units are doing. I'm interested in really seeing what what is going to happen uh, with accountability for the Syrian regime, because obviously this has posed a problem unlike others that we've seen before. And then as I kind of alluded to in my post or hopefully explained, I think it would be interesting also to just better understand what are the motivations behind these cases? How how are international organizations working alongside states or separate from states? What are these issues of evidence looking like? How is the UN involved? And then also, what does this look like alongside the ICC? That's been kind of the elephant in the room throughout all of this, where, you know, kind of for, for Syria, I addressed it head on. But what what does it look like when there is a universal jurisdiction case being tried in one country and the ICC is also investigating that situation. What What is that like? I know with the Argentinian uh, courts and the ICC, they, they've been communicating. And I also know that the ICC has only been able to look into the situation of the Rohingya as affecting people who went into Bangladesh. So that's a place where it was able to be kind of complementary. But I think those are the, some of the things that I'm looking forward to watching in this space. And that is all the time we have for today. Haley, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. And the podcast is edited and produced, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Your music is performed by Sophia Yan. If you like the Lawfare podcast, you should check out the other podcasts in our network. That includes Rational Security, the Chatter podcast, as well as our new podcast series focused on January 6th and efforts to bring accountability to its perpetrators, the aftermath. As always, thanks so much for listening.